We're considering together uh, Paul's letter uh, to the Christians in Rome. And so we're looking today at Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Page 1749. Let's pray together as we prepare to hear God's word. Breath of life who inspired the first writers to put these words on paper, words that came from you. May these words now come alive to us, breath of life, come alive to us by your working in us, in our hearts, in our minds, and in our lives. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans chapter 3. What advantage then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Much in every way. First of all, they've been entrusted with the very words of God. What if some did not have faith? Will their lack of faith nullify God's faithfulness? Not at all. Let God be true and everyone else a liar, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. But if our righteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? I'm using a human argument. Certainly not. If that were so, how would God judge the world? Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as we are being slanderously reported as saying, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may result. Their condemnation is deserved. What shall we conclude then? Are we any better? (laughs) Not at all. We've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They've together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced, and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. The United States Senate, with Justice John Roberts presiding, has been engaged in an impeachment trial of Donald Trump. First, the charges against the president were outlined by the House managers or lawmakers in their opening argument. And next, the president's attorney defended the president in their opening argument. And then for a couple of days, there was a very unique exercise. Senators were allowed to ask questions of either the House managers or the president's lawyers. Senators, recognized by the chief justice, declared that they were submitting a question. Then a Senate page brought a card forward with their handwritten question, and the Chief Justice read the question. Think of Paul's opening in Romans 3 as this kind of an exercise. In a sense, what Paul has been teaching in the first two chapters of his letters in Romans is put on trial. Not 
by actual people, but by hypothetical objectors. Paul asks and answers a series of questions as if he's actually in conversation with someone. The questions Paul addresses are general questions about God's righteousness. Is God faithful? Is God true to his word? Does God demonstrate his righteous judgment? But all these questions about God begin with a question raised by his argument so far. What advantage is then is there in being a Jew? Or what value is there in circumcision? Now chapter 2 likely provoked some serious questions amongst Paul's hearers. The truth is... This is just a first foray into these types of questions. Paul will take them up in a fuller way, beginning in Romans chapter 9. But in chapter 2, Paul says, If those who are not circumcised keep the law's requirements, will they not be regarded as those that are circumcised? If God can make a new people out of those who are not circumcised or ethnically Jewish, even so far as to call them Jew or circumcision, what's the point of being Jewish? Those from a Jewish background might be doubting the benefit of being Jewish. Did all Jewish privilege go out the window? Gentile Christians in Rome might be eager to draw such a conclusion. Jewish Christians might fear so. Now, this might not be an important question to us, but the Jewish believers in the Roman church would be eager to have an answer to this question. Paul asks on their behalf, what advantage is there in being a Jew? At this point, we might expect Paul to say, none at all, sorry, you're out of luck. But that's not what Paul says. His answer, quite emphatically, much in every way. Jewish privilege is not revoked. The Jews have been entrusted with the very words of God. The very words of God. Paul uses a really unique term here. Entrusted with the oracles of God. That's not a a common phrase. But Paul seems to use it here for the benefit of the Gentile Christians in the Roman audience. Gentiles, though not expecting anything like the Jewish law were often eager for oracles from divinity. What Paul envisions is Jews bringing the Gentiles this divine message or oracle. So the important word in this sentence is entrust. Suppose I was heading to Grand Rapids, Michigan to visit my sister. And one of you with relatives in West Michigan area might say to me, oh, since you're heading that way, I have a a family heirloom that needs to get to my son. Would you bring it to him? You entrust me to bring this priceless item to your son. The thing you gave me is not for me. It's for the person to whom I'm supposed to deliver it. That's what Paul is getting at here. And he writes, very helpful. The Jews were truly called to be the light of the world, to hold and trust God's message for his entire creation. And they were supposed to deliver the message to fulfill the trust, to demonstrate to the world that God was God. Except Israel failed miserably. Israel was a a useless messenger. They were unfaithful. Uh, That doesn't mean they didn't believe it. 
No, it means they failed to be true to their covenant obligations. They disobeyed. They kept the message to themselves. They held on to God's message meant for the whole world as if it was a private message meant for them alone. They did not faithfully deliver the message that God entrusted to them. And it gets worse. We saw last week that because Israel did not bring God's light, the nations maligned and blasphemed God's name. The nations not only did not receive the message about God they should have received, the nations also began to assume that Israel's God was a bad God, a a God to be ridiculed, not praised. Well, that raises another question. Well, what if some were unfaithful? Will their unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Not on your life. Not in a thousand years. God remains faithful to his covenant for Israel and through Israel. God made covenant promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And God means those promises. God promises to save the world through faithful Israel. Well, how is that going to happen? I mean, what's required of a faithful Israelite? Paul doesn't show us here how God's faithfulness to his plan gets accomplished. But his answer will come in the next section of Romans. He will show us that God provides a faithful Israelite. Jesus, the Messiah, who at last does carry out the commission. It doesn't mean that the Jews failed, so God sent his son as if Jesus was God's plan B to a failed plan A. That's not at all what Paul means. No, God always remains faithful to plan A. And God will fully and finally keep his promise for Israel and through Israel in Jesus and the Holy Spirit. God will be true to his word. God will be true to his word, which speaks of the things he's promised to do. See, Israel's failure doesn't diminish God's commitment to hold up his end of the covenant. Let God be true and every human being a liar. God will always be true despite the lies his people sow, as it's written, so that you may be proved right when you speak and prevail when you judge. That's a quote from Psalm 51. It's a psalm prayed by King David after he took advantage of Bathsheba and murdered her husband Uriah. David acknowledges that God is right to judge him. So too, God is right to judge his people. God's judgment shows God being true to his word. God follows through as we would expect. God doesn't wimp out on bringing Israel to task for her failure. But if our unrighteousness brings out God's righteousness more clearly, what shall we say? That God is unjust in bringing his wrath on us? No way. God promises blessing for obedience and warns that curses will fall on disobedience. God is faithful and righteous in his dealings. God's character, consistent with his word, is the ground on which God judges the world. We may be perplexed by God's judgment, but God is still God. That one commentator puts it very simply. God is righteous even when he punishes. But don't be foolish and conclude that if that's the case, perhaps it would be better for us to pursue unrighteousness 
Someone might argue, if my falsehood enhances God's truthfulness and so increases his glory, why am I still condemned as a sinner? Why not say, as some slanderously claim that we say, let's do evil, that good may result. That's ridiculous. Nobody in their right mind would argue like this. Do evil so that good may come? The ends justifies the means? I mean, maybe that expediency describes too much of our own world, but it's not the way of God's people. God may be shown as faithful and truthful despite our failure. But that doesn't mean let's make even more of a mess of things so God's glory shines all the brighter. Paul has only one conclusion. Their condemnation is just. It's not unlike a comment that Augustine once said. People would ask highly speculative questions that have no answer or aren't even worth asking. Like, What was God doing before he made the world? Augustine thought such questions were so silly that he would respond, God was making hell for people who ask dumb questions. Those who postulate the kind of absurd argument that Paul is raising here in verses 7 and 8 are deserving, says Paul, of the condemnation they get. The sin of the Jews is not excused just because God uses it for good in his unfolding plan of salvation. So even though Israel failed to carry out the task entrusted to her, God remains faithful. The Jewish people had an important calling in God's plan of salvation. It's not some side issue. Being a Jew, one of God's covenant people, held the responsibility of bringing God's message to the world. God remains faithful and true. But all of humanity is held accountable. Jews as well as Gentiles are guilty of sin. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we've already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Paul made that charge in chapters 1, verse 18 through 2, verse 16. Jews are not better off than Gentiles with respect to sin. All are lost. None have the ability to do what God desires. I mean, you could have a a tremendously moral life. You could be the kindest, most conscientious person in the world. You could live a life of debauched immorality. You could be the most evil person on the face of the earth. Both of these people are the same when it comes to sin. Not that every person is as sinful as every other person. No, it means we're all lost. We all fall short. There are no degrees of lostness. You can't say to someone else, you're more lost than I am, so I'm better off than you. I mean, imagine three people trying to swim from San Francisco to Hawaii. One can't swim worth anything. Drowns as soon as he gets to water of any depth. A second, a weekend swimmer, does recreational laps at the pool. Maybe he swims a a mile, maybe two, maybe even at a a stretch three miles out. And then he flounders and dies. Finally, there's an Olympic caliber long distance swimmer. After 30 miles, he starts to struggle. After 40, feels like he's going to sink. After 50, or maybe even reaches 100 miles, he drowns. 
Any of these swimmers more drowned than any of the others? It doesn't matter who swam how far. None got anywhere near Hawaii. Each ends up dead. Paul's conclusion is simple. There is no one righteous. Not even one. We all alike are under the power of sin. Now don't miss the point that Paul's making here. He deals with two basic understandings of sin. The first understanding of sin has to do with acts of wrongdoing. There are times in Paul's writing, you'll see it, he has a whole catalog list of sins. He did it in chapter 1, for instance. Sometimes Paul lists particular sins to show how we miss the mark of being what a true human made in God's image should be like. We do wrong things. We lie. We commit adultery. We murder. We steal. And so on. Paul's talking about more than that in verse 9. Notice again what he says. Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. See, sin is more than individual acts of wrongdoing. Sin is a power. Sin seems to have a life of its own. Sin for Paul is an evil force in the world. In fact, sometimes we make that force personal by calling it Satan or the devil. Neil Planning has a very helpful word about these two understandings of sin. Sin's not only personal, but also interpersonal and even suprapersonal. Sin is more than the sum of what sinners do. Sin acquires the powerful and elusive form of a spirit, the spirit of an age or a company or a nation or a political movement. Our sinful deeds are indication of the power of sin at work in the world and in our lives. Paul quotes at length, mostly from the Psalms, to hammer home the truth that the power of sin is universal. From Israel's own scriptures, Paul demonstrates Israel's sinfulness, her ungodliness and injustice. They are people under the law, yet they're no better off than the Gentiles, the nations at large. They're under the power of sin. The Jews have no excuse whatsoever. They're not a cut above because they have the law. This Old Testament quotation quotation, only served to point out from all kinds of various angles that God's people are not different than the pagan nations. They don't honor God. They don't show reverence for God. As a result, their lives begin to reflect not God's goodness, wisdom, and love, but their own failure. We are all under the power of sin, dominated by sin, slaves to sin. Look at verses 10 through 18. Sin affects our minds. No one understands. Our motives. No one seeks God. Our wills. All have turned away. Our tongues. Their throats are open graves. Our relationships. We're swift to shed blood. We don't know the way of peace. And finally, our relationship with God. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Every part of us in our lives. And in a striking law court image, Paul concludes, Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. If you were on trial in Paul's world, and you had nothing more to say in your defense, you put your hand over your mouth. 
you were silenced. These Old Testament quotations, like a prosecuting attorney, have pointed out we have no defense. Guilty as charged. Jew and Gentile alike are left without any defense. Obviously guilty, we face God as our judge. And we have nothing to say. But still, some Jews might try to object. And Paul points his conclusion to them. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. No one's justified, declared to be in the right, on the basis of the works of the law. The Jews might appeal to their covenant status. They possess the law of God, the only people who do. The law simply says in response, yes, fine, you have the law, and you've broken it. So Paul concludes that what the law does is simply show us our sin. You can't stand before God and appeal to the works of the law in hopes of being justified, hoping for some kind of a favorable verdict. That'd be like appealing to the police officer who caught you in the crime. Imagine what the judge would say when you raise such a defense. I was with this police officer when they stole that money from the bank. Many Jews, including Paul, had hoped the law would separate them from a wicked world. They were counting on the law to protect them from God's judgment. And instead, the law only became a witness for the prosecution. Guilty as charged. From Romans 1.18 through 3, verse 20, Paul has been addressing two interlocking questions. On the one hand, all humans are seen to be in the wrong before God. Paul says things like this, the wrath of God's being revealed from heaven against all the godless, godlessness and, and wickedness of people. 1 verse 18. You therefore have no excuse, you who pass judgment on someone else, for at whatever point you judge another, you're condemning yourself. 2 verse 1. Jews and Gentiles alike are under the power of sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. 3 verse 9 and 10. On the other hand, God has made promises to the people of Israel. God promised that through them, He would provide the solution to the sinfulness of humanity. Let God be true. And every human being a liar. Paul says, God still stands by his covenant. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jews, then to the Gentiles. For in the gospel, the righteousness of God, God's covenant faithfulness is revealed. So what is God going to do? How do we get out of this mess? More importantly, Will God prove himself faithful? Of course, those of us with faith know that this is no to-be-continued cliffhanger. We know what God has done. 
God's been true to his covenant justice. The faithful death of Jesus the Messiah unveils how the one true God has been true to his covenant. The world was not ready for such an answer. The world was shocked to see the way that God dealt with a world gone wrong. But to all of us, to a world lost in sin and guilt, God came through. And we meet God's solution at the Lord's table. Here we come face to face with a faithful Israelite, Jesus, the Messiah, who offered God the faithful obedience which the nation of Israel should have offered. Jesus succeeded where Israel failed. Jesus was faithful to the saving purposes of God. He obeyed. Jesus, Israel's Messiah, was obedient to death, even death on a cross. And the grand surprise is, this Messiah represents his people. What's true of him is true of us. It's why all who are baptized into Christ and who believe Jesus as Lord and Savior are invited to join in this meal. At this table, he will feed us with himself by the Holy Spirit. So we come to receive all his benefits and blessings, those of his atoning death, his life-giving resurrection, his ascended lordship. Lift up our hearts, giving thanks to the Lord our God, because we praise our gracious Father, for he created heaven and earth, made us in his image, and he kept covenant with us, even when we fell into sin. We give thanks for for Jesus Christ, our Lord, who by his life, death, and resurrection begins the renewal of God's whole creation that will be consummated on that day when he returns and he will live with us forever. We give thanks to God the Father that our Savior Jesus Christ, before he suffered, gave us this memorial of his sacrifice until he comes again. At his last supper, the Lord Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup after the supper. And he said, this cup. Is the new covenant in my blood. Drink this in remembrance of me. For whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray together. Lord our God, Send your Holy Spirit so that this bread and cup may be for us the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. May we and all your saints be united with Christ and remain faithful in hope and love. Gather your whole church, O Lord, into the glory of your kingdom. Amen.